Welcome to the Doing Cool Things podcast, a career podcast brought to you by the Knowlton Center for Career Exploration. I'm your host, David Snyder. Thank you for joining today's episode. Hello, and welcome back to the Doing Cool Things podcast. I am joined today by somebody who, because I run the show and I can say what I want, I think is doing maybe the most cool thing that I've I've talked about so far. Uh, super excited um, to have a 1975 grad from Denison University with a degree in sociology, art, and African studies, um, who to date has helped establish 3,794 libraries across 13 countries uh, with nearly 4 million books shipped and over 1,500 partners. Absolutely wonderful. Changing lives book by book according to the website, the founder of the African Library Project, Chris Bradshaw. Chris, thank you so much for joining uh, the show today. How how are you? I'm super swell. Just got back from Uganda and I'm a little bit jet lagged, but mostly just loving being home. <laughs> well, welcome back. We're, um, I know we were talking a little bit before the show about your trip, but would love just to hear a little bit more about that. What were you, what were you doing um, you know, while you were in, in country? We were there to do some monitoring and evaluation. So we went to 10 of our 258 libraries in Uganda. And we talked to school librarians, teachers, readers, uh, spent a lot of time with our partners. Uh, we did a teacher librarian training for 70 teachers uh, up in the northwestern section of the country, which is where there are about a quarter of the population at the schools are Sudanese and Congolese refugees. Feel really great about working in that area. Um, And we met with all kinds of stakeholders, Peace Corps Uganda, uh, the press. We we did a lot of stuff and went on safari. (laughs) I know, saw lions on the hunt. Great things, great things all around. Wow. Um, So career podcaster, a typical question I'd like to start with. What did you want to be when you grew up? Well, that's easy. I, I really just had one goal and that was to be a leader. Yeah. I learned very early in life that leadership is very hard work, but I loved it. Um, I loved the kind of um, control that you get when you step out and make stuff happen. Um, and, uh, I, you know, thought I wanted to be an executive of some kind, which I was along the way, um, on my career path, but I knew I wanted to be a leader and started early on and just kept going. <laughs> I was going to say, we, so we don't have a, a major in leadership specifically, but what were the type <laughs> of things that, that drew you to Denison and, and what did you get out of your uh, time here that really helped shape that leadership journey for yourself? Well, of course, Denison's and Granville's incredible beauty drew me like a magnet. (laughs) Um, The thing that really had a huge impact on me at Denison, there were two things. One is that I organized a group of students to visit weekly TICO, which I don't even know if it's still around, but it was the Training Institute of Central Ohio. It was a juvenile institution um, for criminal offenders in Columbus. And we went to see the same group of guys every week. There were about, I don't know, 25 guys, maybe in like the equivalent of a sort of a cell block. And uh, that had a huge impact on me. Uh, The other thing was I did my junior year abroad. It started with um, summer at Kalamazoo College, uh, focusing on African studies. And then I went to Forabay College in Sierra Leone for a semester. And then I had, I was done by, I think January, at the end of January. So I spent February through till the next September traveling uh, across the continent, pretty much on my own, originally with a uh, another Denison student, but um, we parted ways after a while. And so that was a wild ride. I don't know how else to describe it other than wild, right? That's, you know, in that in that study abroad experience and you're you're making your way through the country, you're learning. Or think this is where I'm going to 
you know, eventually come back and make my impact? At the time, there was uh, so there was really hardly any infrastructure in Africa. Um, and I so there was no there were no restaurants and there were no guest houses or places to stay at night. There was no running water. Most places there was no transportation set up. So I really depended on locals for everything. And I really wanted to do something um, to help the people that I had met. Uh, but I, at the time, I really couldn't figure out how to, um, to help uh, with extreme poverty when they didn't really even have an education system. Uh, I thought about Peace Corps and I do have massive respect for Peace Corps mm -hmm. and Peace Corps volunteers. We've worked with thousands of them with the African Library Project. But for me, I just, it wasn't enough. I wanted to do something beyond a local community. And um, so, I, you know, it's one of those things that slept dormant in me for, you know, 25 years, probably maybe 30 years. And then when I, uh, I, I homeschooled my kids and we were on a, quote, unquote, homeschooling field trip in Lesotho, pony trekking uh, in the interior part of the country where there are no roads, no running water, definitely no books. And um, my son got bored riding his horse. And that so he did his favorite thing. He pulled out a book to read. And so this completely weirded out our guide. Uh, and I asked him if there were um, about libraries in the country of Lesotho, which is a little mountain kingdom that's completely surrounded by the country of South Africa. And he said, I, I think, I think there is a library in the capital city. And I couldn't stop thinking about one library in an entire country when in this country, actually too many books are a problem for most people. Most people have them falling off of our bookshelves and they're filling up our landfills. And so when I got back, I talked to the uh, head man about uh, libraries and he said, we have always wanted a library. Oh, we have dreamed about it, but we have no idea how to get books. And until really just a couple of years ago, there was no place in the country of Lesotho to even buy a book, a used book, on the street in a market stall. They just were not available. Um, and so I said, well, a book, you know, a library is a lot more than a, than books. I mean, you'd have to have the space. You've got to have uh, somebody to train as a librarian. Um, you'd need to have furniture. And I said, probably the most important thing that you would need is a group of committed local leaders uh, that will oversee the long-term sustainability of the library. Um, so I said, but if you can come up with those, I'll see about getting you books. Two months later, I talked to him and he was like, the building is half done. And I was like, oh wow. my God, you're kidding. This is happening. And then I was like, oh crap, I've got to do this. <laughs> so, um, they decided to give the project to a Peace Corps volunteer who was uh, slated to come in a mm. couple months, which was a great idea because none of them had ever seen a library. And uh, while she was coming, I um, was trying to figure out how to collect the books, what kind of books, how to ship the books, how to get them through customs, all the kinds of logistical things. And uh, when she got there, it turned out coincidentally that she was a retired librarian. Wow. Yeah. So, so that was our that was our beginning. And I can't even remember what your question was now. <laughs> no, that's that. What, what a what a awesome story there, especially just to to hear how like how quickly they jumped on that idea. So where where did you get that first, you know, shipment of books? How did you start putting things together once you're home and realized oh, this is happening? Well, like I said, we were homeschooling, so a lot of them came out of our own home and uh, a few friends' homes because homeschoolers are mad, mad about books and have all kinds of fantastic educational books around as well as fun books. So um, really it was just um, mostly friends and my homeschooling community that, that contributed the first books. We, I, we did um, five libraries with that uh, Peace Corps volunteer. 
and throughout Malayalaya Valley in Lesotho, um, which was perfect thing because, you know, she knew both sides of the culture. She was there to see what the kids were drawn to, what the reading levels were like um, to get, you know, to, to get to know and get organized the local leaders. And of course she talked books because she was uh, a retired librarian. And so she knew what was available on our side and it was really a very perfect kind of uh, beginning. I'm just keep thinking like what type of local mindset did you have to like work with? I, I you know, it, it's just like that. How did you work with somebody that didn't necessarily have a background of all the things that a library can be for a community? Um, how did you kind of help grow that, nurture that, make sure that like this is actually going to be that sustainable growth? It is huge. Uh, the difference is just awe-inspiringly huge. Um, people have not been exposed to books. The very first thing you have to show them is how to open a book without ripping the pages. Things that we do on our mother's lap when we're right. tied to a chicken um, are just very basic that we, you know, on a bookshelf that you put books standing up with their spines out that we think that's just such a duh, but it's not, right. it really isn't, um, you know, having your hands clean before you handle books. Um, it, there's, you talk to any African very long and they'll say, we are not a reading culture. Well, they, it's difficult to be a reading culture when you don't have anything to read. And so many Africans that learn to read in schools, a lot of adults have lost their ability to read because there was nothing to read after they finished school. And in school, they were just reading whatever was written on a chalkboard and copying it down, if they were lucky, into a, a notebook or on the dirt or wherever. So um, it, it really is uh, a huge uh, difference. And we, um, that original librarian, whose name is Marianne Eisman, she uh, sourced a book that was written by VSO, which is the equivalent of the Peace Corps in Great Britain. And it was called um, something like uh, setting up and running a, a, a school library, something like that. And it was a great place to start. It put together the experiences of VSO volunteers around the world who were trying to set up libraries in developing countries. And so we eventually, after our first thousand libraries, we bought the rights to that book and we um, edited it and made it our own using a lot of those original drawings and ideas. And it's called How to Set Up and Run a Small Library in Africa. And it has become the... Um, you call it, you know, the creme de la creme in the library development manual world. Um, and it's available on our website if anybody's interested um, for a free download. Uh, but that is part of just um, the systems. That's what we use for the curriculum in training all of our teacher librarians is that book. And every library, each of our libraries gets a copy of that book. Um, we also... Uh, this has been very important to us. Um, you know, we have these on the ground partnerships in Africa and having good on the ground partnerships is super important to making sure that the product is what you want it to be. You can't, uh, we, did, we took a trip back to Lesotho after our first like 12 or 14 libraries and we found some of the libraries were running really well. Um, and some were just okay. And some, and we found one where the books had not been unpacked uh, and had been sitting in a room for two years. And it was like, okay, that's it. We got to have people on the ground that are there to vet these projects and follow up with them. And um, so we have, we now ship in C containers, 30 to 65 libraries at a time, depending on if it's a small or large container to our partners and our partners vary. Uh, some of them are ministries of education. Some of them are uh, universities with university librarians taking the lead. Some of them are NGOs, non-governmental organizations that specialize in uh, library development or literacy. They work in the same space that we do. Um, or one of them, like the one that I just got back from uh, in Uganda, is called Njuba. And one of the things they do is they are in partnership with like 1500 
schools and they run spelling bees throughout the country, um, both at local schools and then district levels and then countrywide and Africa wide. And, you know, so uh, getting good partners is super key to um, to doing a good job. Yeah. How did those partnerships develop? Do you do a lot of reach out? Do you find it's more inbound? Um, just curious where that relationship begins and how those kind of continue. Well, we have a whole criteria set up for the um, countries that we will work in. First of all, they have to be Anglophone, English speaking countries where English is the national language, because we have a limited supply and we want our books to have maximum impact. Mm-hmm. We also um, well, this was pre-pandemic, but we required that Peace Corps worked there because the U.S. government can do a much more thorough job of um, vetting countries than we can. Um, we require that there's no ongoing internal um, like civil war or conflict um, because it's easy to get a bunch of schools and libraries wiped out quickly in that kind of situation. And um so that's the beginning is is looking at the country. Then we do have a steady, steady flow of inquiries from uh, people who are interested in literacy and libraries in African countries asking us to help them. It is It has been difficult to find organizations that have the kind of capacity to be able to deal with the scale at which we work. And we will start Um, with a small container, which like we'll start with 30 libraries, which is a a big lift. It's a heavy lift. Most places, I mean, it's a heavy lift for them to think about starting one library. Um, So um, that's gradually, you know, we found the right kinds of organizations. If it's a country that we want to work in, um, we will reach out to our contacts, globally, uh, including other NGOs that might be working with that that organization. Uh, we always touch base with Peace Corps because they have lots of education volunteers and they really have a pulse on the ground of what's uh, the best organiz- the best, you know, the best people that are working in country. And Peace Corps has been very helpful in us uh, vetting our partners. That's wonderful. It sounds like just all corners of the world kind of really coming together to to make that happen, Uh, whether it's government, NGO, private citizens. That sounds like a really, really phenomenal mix of of people uh, and expertise. And um, what just being together through that desire to to help others is is really cool to see that in action. Um, It is amazing. It's amazing. I just want to say I have never met a crappy person that wanted to start a library. <laughs> that feels like a pretty good litmus test of a person. That's, yeah. uh, <laughs> so going going back to you know post Denison, um, we graduate from Denison, have a career before this. What what tell, could you tell me a little bit about your career? You mentioned being an executive. How did your leadership style evolve from the time you left Denison to the time you start the African Library Project? Well, immediately after graduating from Denison, um, I took a job as a waitress at a Lums in, um, what's the name of that town near Denison? Uh, Newark? Yeah, in yeah. Newark. Yeah. In Newark. <laughs> I lived in Granville, uh, got myself a horse. And uh, mm-hmm. the main reason I did this with another um, woman, Ann Hornsby, who graduated with me, um, we had, um, she and I had run this program at Tico. And our goal was to get a um, residential treatment facility for juveniles um, established uh, in um, in Columbus or in the area because they were all going straight into these institutions and coming out so much worse than they went in. And so we waitressed at night and then during the day we lobbied with local judges, sheriffs, uh, attorneys, DAs, um, all kinds of, you know, prison people, all kinds of people um, in that area. And though we didn't do it while we were there, um, eventually one did get started from our initial efforts. So that was pretty cool. Then I joined, this was in the bicentennial year, and I joined a wagon train that was going across the country 
to Valley Forge with my horse. Um, and uh, my horse got sick along the way and we had to put him down. Oh. So that was a little sad story, but that, that's okay. I ended up, you know, driving mule teams and riding other people's horses that were tired. So that was fun. Um, I had a whole potpourri of other kinds of jobs. Um, I started a, um, a horse ranch. My brother owned the actual property and I owned the business. And uh, so we um, trained, broke and trained horses. We boarded horses. Uh, I contracted with a local YMCA camp to provide them with a stock tack and instructors for a riding program. And eventually, even though I had like three jobs and my horse thing, I really couldn't even support myself paying a hundred dollars a month for my little cabin. Um, but they offered me a job full time. And so um, I started working for the YMCA uh, in Indiana and um, I did that for several years. And then I ended up uh, again, I had that, it felt that that urge to want to lead. And so I took a job as an executive director of um, a YMCA camp in California. And that's how I ended up initially in California. Um, and then, so I was with the YMCA for like 10 years running camp and conference centers, including a bunch of international ones. Cause I continued traveling a lot internationally and then, um, went to China and started traveling around the world. Um, I did that for like a year and a half. Halfway through that trip, I met what was going to be my husband in Tibet, uh, studying Buddhism, and then spent the other half of the time um, mostly traveling with him. And that was in, um, we traveled uh, and lived in Israel and, and Europe and uh, the Middle East. Um, then he was from San Francisco. So I ended up back in San Francisco and, um, you know, I had other kinds of jobs, international jobs, uh, running host families through get finding host families for international students. And, uh, then yeesh, what did I do? I, um, I think I started having kids and I homeschooled. So, uh, that took another yeesh, I don't know probably that's more 10 than a full-time job 10 there. or 12 <laughs> years and and I started the African Library Project and that's it I I really had a very wide variety of of jobs in life you, you can see the maybe it's just easy from my perspective seeing those themes of like being a leader but serving others the spirit of adventure all of the like were, were all of those like I guess while you were doing it was it conscious like this is what I want out of my life or was it like later that you looked back and you're like oh I can kind of see how some of these strings connected and they all kind of led um to where I've, where I am now well it's not like when I was you know in college I said I wanted right. to start a you know a nonprofit <laughs> that uh is going to start libraries in Africa but yeah. I have always had a, a belief that you need to uh, gravitate towards things that you love to do. And that if you do that, um, it's going, your life will be meaningful. And um, yeah, if you don't do that, um, life is kind of going to suck. Two <laughs> <Your> words. <so. laughs> yeah. I guess obviously start right starting a nonprofit that serves you know 13 countries across Africa is maybe maybe the the easy answer here but like what what has happened in your career what has happened in the work that you've done that like you absolutely didn't expect to happen uh, not even in the wildest dreams Oh wow Well not in the wildest dreams um, I, I will say that very quickly after I started with libraries, really very quickly, I saw its potential and, um, you know, saw there was infinite supply and demand and that we could do thousands of libraries. So that, I, I mean, really, I did like five and said, wow, this thing. But the thing that was, that really I, I had to jump from is I can only do so much. I really need to see if others in the world are interested in doing this too. 
And that was a huge jump is um, after I started and started collecting at local schools, I then asked them and said, well, would you be willing to do all the collecting and the sorting and the packing and raising the money? And I'll just connect you with the, the library. And they were like, yeah, we'd do that. And um, I have just seen the um, incredible generosity and compassion of uh, Americans and Canadians to um, who realized that the world was not created flat. And we are very, very lucky to have been born in a place where, honestly, life is easy. I mean, you know, we may think it's hard and it does feel hard. And I'm not saying it's not really hard for some people, but that's a relative thing. You know, we have so mm -hmm. many social systems to fall back on. Um, we have things like libraries, you know, public libraries and free public education and uh, welfare and food banks and good roads and and hospital health care i mean i can just go on and on the kinds of things that we just take for granted um and they just they just they just don't exist a lot of places in the developing world yeah i, I think i mean even <laughs> i think back to junior high or high school things like that and it was like the library was like the last place i wanted to be at any time of day and it was and it's like with the benefit of growing up and maturing and things like that not that i'm <laughs> completely grown up but um it's like that like we have that and that's in the context of the world that's incredible um and to the point yeah. that we take them for granted and now like um but to we, be able David, to, to make that impact is huge we, david we have electricity i know <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> we are, we are talking you know on for yeah. on a completely different time zone seamlessly <laughs> And it's, uh, it's, it's, you know, when you, when you put it in that, in those terms, uh, <laughs> unbelievable. Yeah. Um, so obviously that trip, you know, to the, where you're talking and you're to this guy, it's kind of sparks this, um, was there a next big aha moment for you? Was it that, you know, as you were just kind of talking about, was it when you get to five and you're like, okay, this, this is real, this is much bigger. I need to give up a little bit of. To, to focus on other things um, or was there another like moment in time that you're like, okay, here's, here's our next push. I'm just curious, you know, when, when do these moments strike you? Is it like a, uh, an aha eureka moment or is it like an ongoing, like, okay, I really need to solve this problem and just continue to work. Oh my God. You got to solve problems constantly. Yeah. I mean, if you don't like solving problems and there was nobody else doing what we were doing um, and there's still, our model is unique in that we, um, offer anybody the opportunity to start a library through us if they collect a thousand gently used children's books and raise about $650 to cover the costs of shipping. And um, so, I mean, that is unique. And, and part of what I feel really good about doing is that um, the American education system for the most, most part has nothing about the developing world in it um, until you get to college, then you can take some classes. Um, if you choose to, uh, but uh, we are as a country and as a culture incredibly ignorant about the developing world. Um, I will say there was one, there was one time when I really thought we were kind of gone. So we were done for um, after we had done, I think 97 libraries. Uh, we always had shipped through the United States Postal Service in something called M bags, which was for books and paper, mail bags, they were called. Um, and they decided to stop offering that service. And it was a very inexpensive way for us to ship. And I, I just didn't see how, I mean, we took to the, it was on NPR. We, I, you know, I got together with all the other people who needed in bags and we pushed as hard as we could to get the postal service uh, to keep going with them, but they didn't blink. And um, so I took a hard look and said, maybe, maybe, maybe we're big enough to start shipping through sea containers. I didn't know anything. I, didn't know any, I hardly even knew what a sea container was. Um, so that was a whole, you know, research and education process about 
how do you ship through sea containers and what does that mean on the other end? And we had uh, established a couple of really solid partnerships by that time, um, one with the university, with the um, Ministry of Education in Botswana, and the other was with Peace Corps Lesotho and their Ministry of Education. And um, I knew you had to have a very solid connection on the other end uh, because there are literally thousands and thousands and thousands of sea containers that do not get claimed once they arrive um, at the other end because whoever it was was supposed to receive it then has to pay for it to clear customs. And um, oftentimes that money doesn't appear. And if you don't get it very soon, they'll charge like, you know, 50 or $100 a day on demurrage. And that quickly can bankrupt somebody in Africa's pot of money that they were going to, you know, use to get the, the container through. So um, it turned out to be a huge blessing that the Postal Service got rid of M bags because uh, it's been fantastic for us that we now ship in sea containers. Um, it all of a sudden put us on a schedule where all of mm -hmm. the books had to be at a certain place. We use a warehouse in um, New Orleans. All the books, our book drive organizers all over the country ship their books. They have to be there by a certain time. It gives each of them a deadline to finish their book drive. And we all know deadlines work. And- um, They do. <laughs> uh, and, uh, uh, and we knew then that there wasn't, as long as our partners were super solid on the other end, that every book that we sent was going into that container and it was going to be received on the other end and then get distributed. There would be no um, fil you know, filching, hanky-panky kinds of things mm -hmm. that can happen, uh, especially when you're shipping to the developing world. Um, and... Um, and, and it just made us further develop our partnerships, which have been a cornerstone of our success. So, you know, it's one of those things which at the time you just go, oh, my gosh, what are we going to do? And in the end, you go, oh, my gosh, thank God that happened. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's a, such an interesting blessing really that it, that it happened that way and was able to kind of make things systemic for you and i'm sure that that had a huge um impact when you saw those like shipping changes happen did you suddenly see like an influx of like how many libraries you're able to support how many countries you're able to support i guess how how did that change the scale of the work that you were doing uh yeah well our partners loved it because by then they were big enough and strong enough to be able to handle um, small containers. Um, and, you know, we have now done over half of all the schools in Lesotho, Botswana, mm -hmm. uh, Eswatini, which used to be Swaziland, um, Malawi. Um, and we have, you know, big numbers in Ghana and Sierra Leone, um, Uganda, South Africa, um, Kenya and uh, those, so, uh, you know, without shipping by sea containers, that that really wouldn't have happened. We've been able to scale up because of that. When you think about the work that you've done um, since, you know, 2005, what, what are your, like, I guess your core traits, your core, um, I guess, personality strengths, things like that. What, what's kind of carried you through challenges? Uh, I think vision, <laughs> you know, from the beginning of seeing what could be. And I think I have a very practical side, which um, thinks through, um, you know, a simple idea, but what are the complications of it? What can happen? Uh, I'm an organized person. Um, I have an incredible team. Uh, have had so many fantastic people that have worked with us. Uh, no one person can do this. It takes, um, you know, thousands and thousands of people on both sides of the pond to make something like this happen. And um, so I have a deep appreciation for um, others. I, I also think just the area that we're working in, literacy is so core 
to most Americans that you don't have to explain why it's important. <laughs> right. You know, we all know that it's important to know how to read and to have access to things, to share the world's knowledge um, about what's already happened and to dream about our future and develop your insides through, you know, fiction and all kinds of things. So, um, uh, and I also, I just have a lot of energy, you know, just got a lot of it. <laughs> and that, that, that helps just being able to say, I've got the energy to go do the work and then to go do it. Um, it's perfect. So your own leadership style, how has it changed and who are the leaders that you look up to? Honestly, I look up to the Obamas. <laughs> I'm just, uh, I'm just floored by, you know, kind of their history. And um, it's hard for me to imagine taking on the kinds of leadership challenges that they have taken on. Um, and uh, I, I just feel that they've done it with a lot of grace and mm-hmm. uh, intelligence and warmth and compassion. And um, yeah, I mean, both of them. I'm just, I'm total fans. <laughs> not not a bad pick there. <laughs> it's uh, obviously, <laughs> the work they do is tremendous. Um, and uh, that's wonderful. Um, what are some of the things happening you know, currently in your role um, that you view as your biggest challenges and how are you overcoming those? Well, the pandemic put a big, that um, was very challenging for us because a lot of our book drives happened in schools and schools all of a sudden weren't thinking about helping anybody but themselves. They could barely function themselves. And they're still kind of recovering from that in many ways. Um, and so, you know, where we were doing like 400 libraries a year, uh, that dropped to maybe 250. And um, we're still trying to build back up because like in Uganda, where I just was, we've been doing um, a large container every year for them. Like um, our fourth container just arrived and it's 60 libraries. And within five minutes of landing, practically the first thing they asked me is, can we do two containers, you know, this year? <laughs> and we're struggling to get one container to them. So that is definitely a challenge. Um, it's also been a challenge in Africa because uh, you take a country like Uganda that totally shut down. Many of them did. They totally shut down, even though they didn't have huge incidences of uh, COVID. But, oh my gosh, like... Um, I just met a guy there who um, came to my rescue one night when our vehicle broke down at midnight on our way up north. And he had a huge scar in his head. And I said, how'd you get that, Fred? And he said, well, it was during COVID and it was um, illegal to be out and going anywhere. But I had to go. Um, I think he was going to the bank. I had to go to the bank. I had to go. And I was on a Boda Boda, which is like a motorcycle taxi. And uh, the police saw us and they started to chase us. And we had an accident and it split his head open. And the driver of the Boda Boda, he said he is um, now using two canes and can hardly walk. And that that's one tiny story of a zillion things that happened during the pandemic in Africa. And they didn't even really believe that COVID was real. They had so little incidence of it. Um, In fact, the president of uh, Uganda has COVID right now. And uh, they're kind of all laughing about it. Like, maybe it is a real thing, you know? (laughs) So, but, you know, people who are carrying bananas around Mm -hmm. in their head and selling it, um, they're living day to day. And there's a lot of Mm -hmm people doing that. And so um, it was hard for them to get applications, uh, to vet the applications. The big sections of the country were closed down. So um, it was challenging on both sides. And um, I would say 
you know, funding is always a huge challenge for us. Um, raising funds. We don't have big donors, um, corporate, we don't have big corporate donors. We'd love, we'd love them, but, um, you know, African literacy is not something that's at the top of the chain for a lot of, uh, corporate, you know, U S corporate, uh, responsibility, uh, people and, um, foundations. I mean, we, we do what we can, but funding is a mm -hmm. constant source of concern for us. Yeah. What, what are, um, you know, when you, that funding piece, what are, what are some of the major costs there? Is it mostly associated with getting things started, getting things shipped? Um, you know, I guess. Well, our basic model is beautiful in terms of covering mm -hmm. the direct costs of shipping, because we have a model where we believe that every piece of our organization needs to have skin in the game. So the local community is contributing yeah. the space for the library, uh, furniture, uh, somebody to train as a librarian and the library committee. Uh, our partners in Africa cover, we don't send them any money. They cover the costs of bringing in the containers, uh, doing the teacher librarian training, um, and vetting the applications working you know, with us, the kind of time that it takes to do all that. And our book drive organizers are paying the direct costs of shipping their books. Um, about $400 covers the cost of getting their books from wherever they are to our warehouse in New Orleans. And then every book drive pays $250 directly to us. And that all goes together to cover the costs of shipping the containers to Africa. And then we have to cover our own costs. We have, um, staff and it's just um we don't have huge costs but um you know it does mm -hmm. it, it costs money to um and, and we don't have a huge staff we have one full-time person mm -hmm. and a few uh part-time people but um that all you know it all costs money and we also do things like we have been uh we've purchased HIV AIDS books new ones that are um have been written specifically for in the African context to go to countries with high incidence of HIV. Um, we sometimes buy local language books to try to put into our libraries because we feel like that's uh, very important for people to be able to see themselves. And, and uh, even though the countries where we work, most of them start learning English when they go to school, they are more comfortable in their local language uh, for a while just like we are and um so yeah we have we have some costs <laughs> yeah that's a, i know it's something that we we discuss with students here as far as like when they want to enter nonprofit space or or spaces where they can help others and it's like you, you good intentions mean a lot you have to start with those but there are costs associated the, these places are businesses you have to keep the lights keep the lights on, keep the doors open, what, you know, what have you. Um, what, what advice would you offer to a student that's looking into, you know, the nonprofit space, maybe the NGO space working internationally, kind of a choose your own adventure, you know, question there a little bit, but what, what's the, what's the advice that you would give um, to students currently looking in that space? Well, first of all, right on, go right for on. it. <laughs> yeah, we need to. Uh Next, I'd say, you know, find organizations that are out there working in the basic space that you're interested in and see if you can get an internship. Uh, learn as much as you can from people who have a lot of deep experience in the field. You can learn so much, um, even though I wasn't working in, um, you know, library development, I certainly learned a ton as um, an executive with the YMCA running camp and conference centers about all types of things that later, you know, running a board and all kinds of things that came in uh, handy. Um, I, yeah, just do it. Get experience. Keep do doing it. it. Yeah. Do, uh, you know, I'm with Nike. Just do it. <laughs> it is a really good motto. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really good one. It is good. <laughs> uh, what? When you think back maybe to the to the your Denison education and some of the things that you got while you were here, um, if you could take a time machine to give yourself 
some advice before heading off into to your adventures post Denison? What does it look? Does it look that same same way as far as do it? Get an internship, get some deep experiences, or is there uh, any other words of wisdom that you would share with yourself? I, I think you know I wouldn't be afraid to reach out to uh, Denison alum or anybody mm-hmm. really that you feel you really like what they're doing and ask for either an informational interview. Um, you never know where that's going to lead. And people like me, people who are working in the field are always inspired by younger people who are interested in getting into it and want to learn. Um, you know, I tell little kids all the time, I say, you have a secret, a secret superpower. You don't even know about it, but it's that when you ask an adult for help for something that is not for you, you are almost irresistible. Like they can't, they can't hardly say no. If it's something that's not for you and you're like, that's such a winner. Like use it now because it's not always going to be there. And I say that to college students too, as you look to get into the business world, as you are in a unique position that has its own secret superpower. Mm-hmm. It really is. I, I tell students all the time, like, all you're doing is asking somebody to talk about themselves. And most people love that. <laughs> so it's it's not a it's not a hard ask. Uh, seems maybe like an obvious question as we get you know closer to the end here. What's your favorite book? The Power of One by Bryce Courtney. And that didn't even hesitate, had that right away. I love that book. In fact, I was just um, in Uganda and I was at a library that I had actually collected all the books for and shipped. I didn't even realize this till I got home when I looked it up and it was like, I was the one that I was at that library. I said, who was your book drive organizer? And they didn't know. And I came home and researched and it was me. And in their library was the power of one, which is the story of a South African boy who um, is discriminated against a lot. um, And he wants to become the welterweight champion of the world. And it's not just the power of one, like one person, it's the power of one people when we come together to collectively try to get something done. And I just love that concept. And it's, it's an amazing book. And there's a sequel if, in case anybody decides they want to read it. And when I was there, I had shipped the power of one and I had just told their, um, their principal about this book because he told me about his favorite book. And then we found it in the library. I gave it to him and he just like clutched it to his chest. And within five minutes, he started reading it. And yeah, love it. <laughs> oh, what, a, what a cool memory. That's uh, It feels like that book should then be in all the libraries. But <laughs> I know. Well, it is. It's kind of a fat. It's not a kid's book. Sure. And we oh, yeah. ship mostly kids books. So, yeah. But that yeah. was a secondary school library. So I put it in. <laughs> yeah. Is, so is the focus then mostly on on making sure kids can help develop literacy and and I guess tell me a little bit about the the uh, decision making to make it so it's mostly children's books. Well, that's a very interesting thing. Um, it's we ship preschool through eighth grade books, um, unless it's for a community library. Then we might put in some books for um, adults, but mostly that choice is because most of these readers and teachers. Have, they never had access to books. So even for teachers, reading at an eighth grade Thanks. level is a big challenge. So um, even like when we send books to secondary schools, that's part of it. Another part is um, in countries like Uganda that have very strong um, laws. Um, mm-hmm. I don't know if you've read, they've been recently in the news uh, about their LGBTQ laws. Um th- if we if we sent adult books that had information in them that um, the government disagreed with, we would be shut down completely. And it's happened to other organizations. So, I mean, they had one book, they found one organization sent and they just shut it all down. Um, but by sending just kids books, mm-hmm. uh, it's a little bit of insurance against that. But and it also fits the reading population. So sure. providing that accessibility to the to the material, making sure that that's sustainable and people can can be introduced to that. Yeah. 
yeah, I, I get it. Um, um, uh, what, what's next? What's next for, for you? What's next for the African Library Project? Is it to get to 4,000 libraries? Oh, definitely. Yeah, definitely yeah. 4,000. We ought to reach 4,000 this year. And um, I don't know. I feel like we need to just keep doing more of, of what we're doing. We do these summits every other year where we bring all of our partners together and uh, share best practices and bring teacher librarians together and um, the host country, which it rotates around, they will um, uh, teach, you know, we bring the, the librarians, the teacher librarians from the host country um, together. So it's a national conference for them. It's an international conference for all of our uh, partners. And um, we're just, we had to, um, cancel our the ones for the last couple of years because of the pandemic. And so getting back on track, we're all very eager to get back together and get rolling in something that we know um, has been super powerful in terms of uh, spreading the very best ideas that are being developed in all of our libraries throughout all of our countries. So um, I feel like we're just, you know, we're trying to get back on track and we're en route. Mm -hmm. <laughs> wonderful to hear so why well, i would obviously want to give you the opportunity to shamelessly or not so shamelessly your choice promote the organization where where do people find the african library project and how can they help uh you can find us on the web africanlibraryproject.org um do a book drive collect a thousand books raise 650 dollars you too can start your own library in africa colleges do it david all the time it's a, it's a lovely town and gown kind of uh, activity. Um, cough, cough, nudge, nudge, Denison, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, some of those students that are interested in NGO things, they can start right now. They could start, or if they're interested in Africa or African studies or any of those kinds of things, um, or literacy or reading or want to be a teacher or, you know, it's a fantastic project for people in all those areas. Um and you can find out how to donate online. You can, uh, you know, book drives. Uh, we're always looking for dedicated volunteers that want to give um, a chunk of time that are really passionate about our mission. Um, um, board members, there's a lot of ways to be involved with us. Wonderful. And I will make sure to have those all linked in the episode description. So anyone that's interested in can check those out. Um, Chris, thank you so much for your time today. Uh, this is awesome. I really enjoyed it and can't wait for others to, to listen and hear about the way that you're helping change the lives of others and uh, making such a such a phenomenal impact. Um, thank you for the time today. And listeners, if you're interested in learning more, be sure to check out those links. Um, connect with me. Happy to, to help point you in the right direction. Uh, and in the meantime, keep on doing cool things. Thank you, David. It's been fun.